spending time with the first chapter of the Torah this week in our first Torah or inaugural Torah study session of Tea and Torah. And here having the first chapter and the first chapters of Shemot. The big paradigm is that God makes the world through speaking. And it's not lost on the rabbis or any readers as you go through the first chapter of Genesis of Breshit, that we have two words of creating. We have the creation of yotzer, fashioning from pre-existing material, taking matter of one form and it goes into energy and into other matter, where basically the fact that almost everything in the world is changing form rather than coming into being out of nothing. As we rehearse in the Barhu as well, which is the prayer drawn from the first chapter of Genesis, we rehearse the two issues of how is it that God both fashions, um, Yotzer Or, but also Bara, Uvorei Choshech, that there's a form of fashioning creation and there's a form of creating out of nothing. The rabbis disagree, but they wonder the question we inherit is what's the difference and are we capable of creating out of nothing at all? Are we capable of, of bara, God created, Rishi bara Elohim? And there's a discussion about whether giving birth to children is a case of creating out of nothing or whether that relies on the partnership of God in doing so. But one of the answers of the rabbis that becomes so paradigmatic in our tradition is that we create worlds when we speak. And then like the very first notes of the Torah, God speaks the world into being. That is the creating out of nothing. So too, we are given that power to create with our words. Today, the way we deliver our words is so devalued. It's so performative. It's so catch me if you can. We all know that we all need me to tell you that we live in the consequences of a kind of different big bang. It's a diff it was a big bang of destroying mainstream media. If I wanna to talk to a friend, I can't say, well, what did you see Dan Rather say? What did you see Walter Cronkite say? Or what did you see said on the McNeil Lair report? I have no common frame of reference. We're not talking about the same history. We're not talking about the same facts. We live in a time where the words have created worlds that people live in with incredible consequences, which is why the rabbis say, if you really want to know in a way how to be most like God, be pure of speech. Be careful because you put into motion with what you say, the worlds that people will then inhabit, including yourself. When I look at people who do actions that I have difficulty with. One of the things though that I feel is a kind of sympathy for what world are they living in? And I may be quick to judge that I know what world they're living in. It's a world of racism or it's a world of hate, but did they create that world? Or is that a world that was handed to them? When I read statistics like the fact that 40% by one poll I read in I guess media I trust, 40% of Americans think that the election was stolen. And that regardless of the fact that half the people who were administering the election and, and watching over it were Republican, that somehow a grave injustice has been done. 
they have a different world that they're living in and producing their actions. Because of this breakup of what worlds we live in based on what media we consume and the great shavira, the great shattering of any common world that we live in, any common frame of reference of truth, or it's not even truth. It's just a delivery of something we can then discuss. We live in this breach. Many of you already know the mitzvah of Genevat Da'at, but I wonder if that's perhaps the most important mitzvah to be thinking about at this time, the theft of someone's consciousness. Genevat Da'at means misleading someone with your words. So they live in a world that is not the true world. Often we give very small examples. Someone writes something on their resume that leads people to believe they actually graduated or leads people to believe that they have qualifications they don't have. You lead people to believe things that aren't true. But the rabbis point out that it may sound like these are minor offenses, but they are the worst kind of theft, the Talmud says, because neva da'at, words that mislead people into thinking something that is, is not true, even though if you parsed the words, they might be questionable or worth a discussion whether you really said that. They're the, they produce the worst kind of harm because they harm a person, not merely their money. It's a theft of mind. Genevad being a ganav, a thief of a da'at, of someone's knowledge, of someone's consciousness, of the subjectivity they live in. It's planting false knowledge in the mind and stealing their subjectivity. We certainly have spent too long playing the can I be put in jail for saying it game, regardless of political party. We've been comfortable for a long time now with parsing our words and all of the, the merely performative aspects of social media has done nothing but accentuate it. Catch me if you can. Did I really, really say that? It's at the heart of these chapters that we have before us. I'm just saying that the ethnic minority that lives among us has the power to help our enemies destroy us. I mean, should it ever come to that? I mean, I'm not actually saying they're dangerous, or am I? I'm not saying that they actually would be treasonous, would, would, would kill us, but who's to say? Maybe that needs an investigation. I mean, there, there are a lot of people who think they would. And meanwhile, the fear and the dehumanization begins. Infanticide itself, though at first not publicly. And then when the midwives refuse to be enablers, the shift goes to the masses. We might locate evil in the power of suggestion, but of course we know its power is in the enablers, themselves parsing their words in order to deceive. We have a Genevat Dad now. The election was stolen. We have to know before we talk to someone where they get their news and what they read and what they think is true. We're not stopping the peaceful and legal transfer of power, those in the mob say. We're just asking for an investigation into the improprieties first. That's Geneva Da. That's parsing. That's being too clever. Who wouldn't want to know for sure that the results were correct? 
That's an abuse of subjectivity. So is the word protest, right? I'm tired of using the word protest for the people outside. They're out there today. There are a bunch of them. They have, you know what their new big sign is on the corner? See, it's three words. I can't remember it. It is Zionism enables Nazism. That's not a protest. That's That's trying to lead people down the garden path by being clever, but leading them to the permission of violence. Because what does it mean after all? To protest a conspiracy of Jewish power in the world, to protest the claims about the Holocaust, or in many of their signs, protesting Jewish power, if it doesn't mean that a logical consequence is someone to take action against it. And what does it mean to protest election results by invading Congress? We see the Ginevata'at this week with Israel and the vaccine. I don't know about you, but I believed what I saw on PBS, on NPR, and in the Associated Press. I was ashamed that Israel is preventing vaccine distribution to Palestinians. Until I found out, the Palestinian Authority has, according to the Oslo Accords, the right to decide for themselves how vaccines are distributed and how it's done. And they have already decided they don't want the Israeli help. And they've joined in with the WHO to use and to get the, the Russian vaccine, along with many other Arab countries, which is perfectly fine. And they're due to start vaccinations in February. But somehow in headlines, in media that say, well, this is very curious. The country that is most ahead in vaccine distribution is a country where Palestinians are not being, being vaccinated. And you, they could say, well, it was technically true. Technically true, the Palestinians aren't being vaccinated yet. You know, someone should investigate that. You know, I'm not calling for any action. It was true when reporters of the Toledo Blade this week refused to have their names associated with their own columns because the owners of the paper changed the headlines in order to make it accord with extremist right-wing media by saying things like some of the protesters were Trump supporters rather than the protesters were Trump supporters. In some ways, Shemot is the parasha that introduces the very notion of propaganda, the dehumanization that leads to violence. The progression which started as the dehumanization of the Hebrews produces the dehumanization of the Egyptians and the Hebrews alike through the propaganda. And the gradual but clear progression leads the Hebrew taskmasters to blame Moshe and Aharon for the punishments and not Pharaoh. The victims are blamed and the consciousness is twisted but the progression was clear all along. For many people, the progression has been very, very clear, if not telegraphed. The Ishbitzer Rebbe comments about Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, when it says, Vayamot Melech Mitzrayim, and the king of Egypt died. And this is the part where Moshe is in Midian, and now maybe the burning bush can say, now that the, the king of Egypt has died, maybe you can go back without a bounty on your head. Yishbitzer writes that Vayamas Melch Mitzrayim and the king of Egypt died. Actually, Pharaoh was really still alive. Vayamas Melch Mitzrayim means that everything human in him died. Everything human died. He was not a human being anymore. And that's why Moses had to go back. And just as some were not surprised this week 
a natural progression of the theft of subjectivity. So too, it's been clear for a long time where it's been going. The idea that it is really all about media distribution and what media people will listen to and how that's done. I want you to hear in the words I'm about to read from former chancellor of JTS and, and former doctoral advisor of Ravna Dav, Arnie Eisen. I don't know about you, but I have long felt challenged by the moment early in the book of Exodus when Moses strikes down the Egyptian who is mercilessly beating an Israelite slave. I realized years ago that by cheering Moses on, as the text leads me to, wishes me to do, I become complicit in a way with the action Moses takes. This too is part of the Torah's intention, I believe. It wants me to lose my innocence in this fashion, so as to increase my sense of responsibility for the world. The lesson is a hard one to learn year by year. We want our innocence back and can't have it. The Torah wants us instead to be thoughtful moral actors, Chancellor Eisen writes. As such, we are not free of responsibility for the evils in which we acquiesce. And what is more, we share in guilt for the evils in which we join. And perhaps to a lesser extent, for the evils of which we approve. Few are guilty, all are responsible, Heschel liked to say. Some of us may choose pacifism as a result of thinking deeply about the costs of the spiraling cycle of violence in the world. But this choice too involves responsibility and incurs guilt, of course, every bit as much as the decision based in part on repeated encounters with the story of Israelite suffering in Egypt, that some evil must be stopped by force if necessary. Either way, the text haunts us with the tragic knowledge that good rarely comes of violence. The Torah is determinedly realistic account of history. The covenant it bequeaths us demands wrestling with the deepest of moral dilemmas. I shift to me, how easily we slide toward violence in the name of injustice and how easily we are incited, all of us. And at the same time, it's a true moral dilemma. Dr. Eisen's reminder of how we can be complicit through inaction as well as action, certainly failing to change <clears throat> the racist structures that govern people's subjectivity so that a person can think of one event as a peaceful protest but were they at a similar event, even a more peaceful one, they would enact stand your ground and use firearms against the same people if they were people of color. We have to wonder if Moses's revelation at finding a way between the two horns of the dilemma was influenced not only by God at the burning bush, but by his life in Midian. And so where Dr. Eisen leaves me, and the realization of this paradigm of Geneva Da'at, of the worlds we live in created by words and the obvious progression toward violence is a reminder that I'm a part of it as well. That the Torah itself, he suggests, is leading us to cheer Moses on, is 
to say, yes, for injustice, this was the right thing. And then to make us question whether we are now complicit in it simply by the cheering of it on. Or if we decide to simply condemn it and find false consolation in simple absolutes, then we too are complicit in a different way. Few are guilty and all are responsible. May we somehow find a way forward as a country and each of us to do our best to take responsibility for the words that create the worlds that we live in.